we have this new tech stack, right? What will we build with it? What will be the new things that get built over the next five to 10 to 15 years on top of this tech stack? York Rhodes is Microsoft's Director of Strategy and Transformation, where he leads company efforts in blockchain and Web3. In this episode, York and I break down Microsoft's evolution into artificial intelligence, gaming, and Web3. AI is now a part of the toolkit. The next thing you do for the next five to 10 years is going to have AI as part of that toolkit. York shines light onto how this new modernized version of Microsoft will change your work experience, your privacy rights, and even create new communities. This type of utility will show up in every productivity tool that we use. Whether it's Word, PowerPoint, Excel, we're gonna see the add-on and the benefits of AI associated with that. It's always a pleasure speaking with York, a true leader in this tech space, and a colleague of mine at NYU. York, thanks a lot for joining me. York, good morning. Thanks for joining some future day. It's great to see you today. Great to see you too. So I got to ask you, for a guy that's been involved in blockchain to the extent that you have, as well as for the length that you have, when is blockchain going to have its chat GPT moment? When will, you know, when will blockchain become ubiquitous? When will it reach the masses? It's a, it's a great question. I'm glad you started there. because That's definitely uh, something that I've been sort of predicting for quite some time. Uh, when I got into blockchain in 2015, which is really where I went down the rabbit hole, I spent about six months really just thinking about like how has technology evolved in the web stacks um, and um, how you know how should we think about this technology as it relates to that. And if you if you ever listen to Tim Berners Lee, who's one of the you know, essentially a lot of people regard him as the father of the internet tech, tech stack, and I just watched an interesting interview with him when he was at CERN uh, as a as a young researcher, when he actually came up with this idea that you could hyperlink from you know, one thing to another. The comments that he makes about the internet that he really feels like where sort of it fell down was actually an identity. So that sort of pushes you towards, well, what, what form of identity? What does identity mean in a decentralized substrate like the internet? How do we think about those technologies in a way that allows a consumer to be self-representative and, self and control over uh, their personal data and actually have a system that if you're going to represent a human being that is self-sovereign, that's actually incorruptible by you know, regime change and things like that. And so from a tech stack perspective, you know, this has now been well studied since uh, blockchain came onto the scene. You know, blockchain has taught us that there's a way to have a technical substrate which gives you self-sovereignty. Uh, and so that's pretty interesting. Right. And it actually fills in a hole that Tim Berners League recognized and has recognized for quite some time. So that's a foundational technology. Um, blockchain also teaches us that um, you can transact value on the Internet uh, in a way that you know, it was very hard today, um, where you're transferring you know, digital assets, essentially, of various forms um, that have a lot of attributes associated with that. And one of those attributes can be value. 
And then thirdly, um, this idea that you can have an identity and own your own data sort of closes the loop on this concept of digital assets and ownership. Um, and so you, you now have this tech stack, which you know almost a decade in, right, has evolved and matured. Um, and I was having this conversation with someone yesterday. It's like, well, where are we on the journey if you compare this to the internet and e-commerce and the scaled up applications that we see, particularly in the e-commerce space. And, you know, only a couple of years ago, I would have said that in a blockchain space, we were like in the sort of the pre-internet stage, right? Like uh, before consumers became aware of the internet, which largely was around 1995, right? Um, Microsoft had uh, actually an interesting opportunity to have something to do at that moment by um, introducing uh, as the default in, uh, technology stack for networking into Windows 95, basically replaced a proprietary networking stack with TCPIP, which is the stack of the internet as the default. Um, so now when consumers, this is 1995, Microsoft shipped Windows 95, it was actually just the uh, anniversary recently of that, you might have seen uh, some videos of um, Microsoft executives dancing around on stage to the Rolling Stones song, Start Me Up, which, by the way, Microsoft licensed for that purpose. So like anybody who was buying a PC at that point that had Windows as an OEM you know, software uh, stack installed on it was getting actually proper access to the internet without any additional configuration, even though like the broadband telecom infrastructure wasn't quite there yet, right? And so that, to me, if you go back and you look at that, what does that represent? You have multiple browser companies at that point in time that enabled you to get access to the internet, including um, Netscape and Mozilla and Microsoft and, and others. That is the internet stack, and that's largely the internet stack that we have still today, right? It's, I mean, yes, HTML has evolved, right? But, but broadly, it's that tech stack. And then you have the five years of you know the, the building on top of that, right? Which which then wound up in being the, you know, the dot-com boom, essentially. And then, obviously, at the end of the 90s, the dot-com bust. Uh, and what happened in 2000? What happened in 2001 was people realized this technology was mature, right? And if you realize that this technology was mature, you can go build scaled-up, massive consumer businesses on top of that. So where we are today in blockchain is... I think we're at this point, it feels like to me that like we sort of scale, we've solved identity, we've solved self-sovereignty, we've, we've solved privacy essentially through various approaches, including zero-knowledge proofs. Um, zero-knowledge proofs are scaling very fast uh, and blockchains are scaling very fast, right? And so like you say, okay, well, scale, privacy, self-sovereignty, and then also wallet technology is maturing pretty dramatically to help protect consumers. And then you say, well, we have browsers like Opera browser, Brave browser, the Chromium browser doesn't quite have uh, Web3 in it yet, but Microsoft Edge um, actually has a very early build of a crypto wallet browser inside of, of, of Edge. What this effectively means is that we've now got this new internet stack, right? And so to me, I propose that we are actually sitting at the time frame around 2000, 2001, when this new internet stack emerged and starts to become the default thing that's available, whether consumers care or not, right? 
just like in 1995, consumers didn't care, but the stack was available. The next wave of mass consumer adoption or development and that adoption uh, can happen, right? And so one of the things that I've been challenging myself and, and other people um, that, that I speak with is, what can you imagine can now be built on top of this new foundation? And that's where I think we are. I think we're at this stage where you could build massive consumer applications on top of this new tech stack, uh, which is the evolved internet test stack, which many people would call a Web3 enabled uh, internet tech stack. So it seems to me, and part of the conversations I've been having with my circle is that with the advent of artificial intelligence, we might have an acceleration in the crypto space in Web3. But there was also this inherent tension, almost like a philosophical tension between the concept of crypto and or blockchain with AI, for example, centralization, right? Versus yeah. decentralization. So I'm wondering in your opinion, can artificial intelligence help crypto evolve and or can crypto help artificial intelligence evolve in certain ways? And you mentioned zero proof knowledge, zero knowledge proof. Um, I think like this might be a good segue to get into the, into the discussion about zero knowledge proofs and, and perhaps how crypto specifically could help AI evolve in certain ways, but I'll, I'll leave it to you, York. I just threw out, you know, a big, I threw out a lot at you. So, well, I mean, so just going back to your question about chat GPT moment, um, I think the tech stack is poised, right. To get there. Right. I would also make just a amendment to what I said as well, because I think the new tech stack also has AI infused in it. Right. And so everything that we're doing now in consumer applications, both at Microsoft and every other, uh, large tech provider is looking at, at how to infuse AI into product productivity tools, right? Whether it's Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, et cetera, it is a productivity enhancer, right? So that becomes a tool that becomes part of this tech stack that, that you build on top of. And, you know, largely, if you look at what ChatGPT is, it is a utility function for every other application that's very accessible, which is what ChatGPT um, made possible. So I think in the, you know, in the context of um, the stack, that's what we largely have now, right? We have this very capable foundation plus this amazing utility that you can really think about as the, the future of uh, how you build applications. Secondly, um, to your point about like this either tension between Web3 technologies and other technologies like AI or benefits of technologies across ecosystems, I think, you know, one of the most amazing uh, things that the Web3 ecosystem has provided to core researchers, including folks at Microsoft Research and others, is the, and, and cryptocurrencies are an example of this, we have a worldwide infrastructure that allows you to create self-sovereign digital identities, uh, allows you to create owned assets by those identities, allows you to transfer value, right? So it's a demonstration of a scaled up worldwide infrastructure that can support those concepts. That is a playground for anybody doing fundamental research 
in encryption technology, whether it's you know one-way hashes or zero-knowledge proofs or uh, homomorphic encryption uh, or fully homomorphic encryption. These are all like um, encryption technologies or identities, right? Like how do we think about identity and authentication differently based on this capability versus uh, the old world of, of what we considered identity, which was really just logins to things like Facebook and Google and, and, and Microsoft, et cetera. So first of all, this technology foundation, the, one of the most things that, interesting things about it is it actually has helped to speed the iteration of these technologies, uh, particularly in the, and you see this in uh, encryption technologies, um, particularly around looking at fully homomorphic encryption and zero knowledge proofs. And the reason it's speeding the iterations on those is because it's a applied use of those technologies, right? Um, and this is one of the challenges with fundamental research. Fundamental research is obviously required, but if you're not doing applied engineering with the outcomes of fundamental research, you don't iterate fast. And so this Web3 substrate has allowed um, these technologies to iterate really quickly and, and a whole community of users, the Web3 builders, see these technologies and recognize their power and are pushing the envelope, right, on, on those uh, things that were only a couple of years ago, uh, still just fundamental research things. And so big benefits of having an applied substrate like that is value to other technologies, Right. And so uh, encryption is an example of that. And that's why, you know, again, we'll, we can talk about zero knowledge proofs and what that means in a minute. This applies to AI as well. Right. And so what do we know that AI needs uh, in order for AI to be trustworthy and trustful? It needs provenance. Right. And what do we fully understand um, from a, a technical foundation perspective from the Web3 world? It's provenance. Right. And it's not just provenance, but it's various different ways of providing consumer privacy, enterprise data privacy as well on top of a substrate that gives you provenance. And so I think one of the added uh, values that Web3 will help do is actually more quickly help to realize how to do provenance at scale in AI data sets and AI training and AI outputs. I think that's a huge benefit without Web3. People would just be trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to do provenance? How do I figure that out? How do I do that with my Azure Active Directory centralized directly of users, right? With Web3, that becomes a conversation that is, okay, AI runs everywhere. AI doesn't necessarily, uh, unless you're doing it in enterprise context, have a uh, authentication directory, right, associated with user access to it, like ChatGPT, you just use it, right? How do I think about provenance in that context? How do I prove provenance in that context? And so that's a, an advent, I think, that accelerates that journey for, for AI um, in that way. I, I imagine from there, like other issues extend off of not just provenance, but issues of, you know, whether or not the machine is properly trained, right? Like issues that you mentioned earlier as it relates to trust, but also bias and, you know, other ethical concerns are there too. So is that where zero knowledge proof can, can come into play? Zero knowledge proof essentially allows you to provide uh, a proof of something without revealing the underlying things. And so that doesn't seem obvious, right? How that's valuable in, a, in an AI context. But if you think about training data 
um, you want to prove maybe the absence of bias in training data, right? You don't need to show the actual data because a consumer would never know how to consume all that data, but you'd want to provide a trust score that says this ran through some algorithm, right? That algorithm did an analysis of the, um, the bias, you know, and the intent to bias and things like that, that you would do um, on, on a training data set. And it got this score that is an okay score. Here's a trust certificate potentially with the score that says the training data was unbiased or unbiased to a certain level, right? Um, that type of thing is quite useful in a consumer context because anybody who wants to know could look at the, the trust certificate and the trust score and know without having to look at the data that it actually has the appropriate characteristics, right? A, an unbiased data set, right? As, as part of, uh, you know, the definition of how, how the AI model got to the answer it got to. So it's kind of interesting because it also touches on the topic of proof of humanity or proof of being alive. And I know that um, Microsoft has a major investment in Sam Altman's company, OpenAI. Sam's also one of the founders of WorldCoin, which as you're probably very well aware, is now using biometrics at, you know, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a retina scan, essentially a way to apply zero knowledge proof, right? Mm -hmm. So can you explain how that works? And then I think that's like a nice link between how zero knowledge proof can come into play from a practical perspective, right? Beyond just the technology. So WorldCoin is uh, both a software stack as well as a hardware org. So you know, one of the one of the concerns about the physical device, the org, is that physical devices uh, in an encryption world that are, you know, things like your phone, for example, which also has secure enclave technology in it. If someone gets a hold of your physical device, then they can basically do all kinds of physical attacks on that device. So that in itself is an attack surface, right? And so the org, right, if it's stolen, then someone can do some physical attacks on, on the org, right? So that's that's a concern. And, you know, perhaps those physical attacks are, um, you know, breaking things open and getting into content. Perhaps that physical attack is, hey, somebody stole it for a couple of days. Um, they they opened it up, they re-engineered something, they injected some malware, right, um, uh, or Trojan capabilities into the device, possibly. I'm making this up, right? Um, yeah. But that's problem with a physical device that's not necessarily in your control, right? That's a vulnerability in any kind of encryption and privacy the hardware. Uh, system. Yeah, exactly. Right. And if you look at in the world of cloud, one of the reasons why cloud are secure is because they have a very secure physical perimeter around the data centers. Right. And so that helps with people not being able to just walk into a data center and start doing physical attacks on the hardware. Right? So that is a vulnerability in itself. The second, the second vulnerability is the software. And these are possible vulnerabilities, right? Um, uh, and when you're doing security, you look at attack services. So what you're doing when you look into an orb is you're doing a retinal scan, right? And so there's software and hardware inside of this device that handles the retinal scan. And then what does it do with that content? Typically in a biometric system, and I believe WorldCoin does, does the same, biometric systems um, whether you're being enrolled or whether you're actually scanning, they don't save the, like the, essentially 
the data that allows you to reproduce a retina, they save a fingerprint associated with that. Um, and that fingerprint is what is what is unique. Um, so you can't go and recreate the retina to create that same fingerprint again. It's basically the fingerprint, which is what, what is unique. In the context of what they're doing with zero knowledge is they actually take some variation, probably a hash uh, of that, and I'm, I'm being a little bit vague because I haven't read the documents <laughs> recently, um, but they largely do do something like this, right? Where basically you, you transform a piece of data like like the fingerprint of the retina into a hash. You store the hash with other scanned hashes on a distributed ledger, and now you have a representation of myself through my unique retina on this distributed ledger through hash technology, and it's just a fingerprint, right? It's not the original, the ability to recreate me, it's just a fingerprint of, of, of that. And what that allows you to do is ensure that there's never a second registration with the same retina, right? So that basically creates a unique account associated with one individual based on their retina. That's done, by the way, through zero knowledge proof. So you don't want access to the original content, but you do want to know, is my retina already resi resident in, in a hash table, essentially, of, in, in this distributed ledger? Um, so, so it that's sounds a, like, bio, bi like biometrics then, York, are like to have like the highest level of privacy, but yet to prove that you're a living human being, it sounds like biometrics are going to be the only way to solve that problem with zero knowledge proof in mind, because I've like I've worked with a sovereign entity uh, to get ID using yeah. zero knowledge proof, right? Um, I actually have a um, sovereign issued governmental backed ID from Palau. I think I mentioned this to you, but that was um, you know I had I had to go through the government and and um, right. You're basically going through a, a KYC process, right? Correct. Um, Correct. Right. And then, which, you know, like if you look at what is the most recognized forms of ID associated with person today, right? It's some form of governmental ID, right? Whether right. it's a passport or a driver's license or, or what have you, right? So that's kind of the scaled up what you would call claims, right? Um, essentially in a, in a technical context, claims about this person. So for example, a New York State driver's license is a claim that York Roads, who holds that driver's license, is actually okay to drive, right? And claims are in some ways similar to zero knowledge proofs um, because you don't have to know anything, right, about uh, what's on that driver's license. But if I hold it, it's a second factor. So my person plus that license gives me two things, right? I am who I am, right? And that's proven through me hold through this thing and a picture on that that I hold. And it gives me an authorization right, to drive, assuming it's not expired, right? Obviously, right? So the te technologies in the identity space and digital identity space is something called a verifiable claim, which is basically how you recreate that scenario using decentralized identities. So if you bring that into like the real world for the people watching and listening, just to as it relates to a person's ID specifically, do we really need then a, a traditional form of ID, like a, a driver's license or a passport as it relates to owning and buying, let's say objects in the future, perhaps, you know, a car or a home, a boat and beyond. 
Yeah. So the today the government a government is the issuing uh, party behind a passport, right, or or a driver's license, and there's a presumption that you belong to that that entity, right? And that's something you know, like your your residency, right, or your social security number in the context of the U.S. That same framework can can very well work with decentralized identities, and essentially instead of having the government effectively own my identity. I own my identity and the government becomes a party that says, okay, associated with this identity, here's a credential that says that, okay, we went through this KYC process. We know this is York Roads and York Roads has the ability to drive, right? So that credential or the driver's license becomes essentially a credential associated with my self-owned decentralized identity that I hold just like I hold a driver's license. Now in a digital context, um, that's actually you know, more powerful than the context of, you know, how do you digitize a driver's license, right? Um, today, right? People ask you for a picture, right, of the front and the back side of your driver's license. That's not a great way to <laughs> create a digital representation of, of this very important document. However, if you do it in the context of, um, you know, verifiable claim, which is signed by the authority, um, New York State would essentially sign this claim that says, okay, we validated that this, this claim is valid for this individual who's holding it. So the, the concepts are similar. The implementation of how we think about identity is what's different under the, under the, under the covers. And it creates actually a more powerful uh, way of interacting that's actually less complicated than typical federated scenarios, federated meaning uh, issued by a, a large authority you know, the ability to do things in the context of my identity that's less duplicative um, is actually quite powerful. So a great example of that is, um, you know, in the financial context with Know Your Customer and anti-money laundering, my identity, my digital identity that has been established and that I own can have these claims associated with it where I've just gone through a KYC and AML process with, say, JP Morgan, and that certificate is signed and issued by JP Morgan as a verifiable claim against my identity, one example. Um, it could also be a zero-knowledge proof. Those things, I think, are sort of overlapping in, in some ways. And um, that claim would allow me to go to the next bank and say, you guys don't need to rerun this. I just did this a week ago right? <laughs> with JP Morgan. You know, you don't have to go through that same level of diligence. Um, I have it, right? Here's the claim. And if you really want to know that they that uh, JP Morgan did it, you can actually follow the trail and, in fact, get a, a new signature from JP Morgan digitally. And then, and then, York, what would be the benefit to something like that if a person, let's say, is looking to operate in the metaverse? Um, you know, is that a situation where in real time they can um, perhaps get a loan to purchase a digital asset while they're, you know, operating in Fortnite or, or something along that line? Yeah, it, it enables um, digital interactions. A metaverse is a, is a, is a good, great metaphor for that, um, right? Because in, in a metaverse, you might uh, want to purchase something and you don't have the enough uh, money in whichever accounts you want to call those accounts, whether it's um, crypto accounts, stable coins, or you know, Venmo, PayPal, whatever, right? And so you want to, in a digital context in the metaverse, right, which is metaverses are 
essentially global, and right? anybody can go into uh, Fortnite, anybody can go into uh, most metaverses, no matter where they are in the world. And then in that context, actually do a transaction digitally, you need some verification that that person is who they say they are, right? Um, that essentially they're the KYC, right? And so it would enable you in the digital context to very quickly establish that, yes, you've recently been through a KYC AML certification and you have it and you can present it. And therefore, the speed with which you could actually provide a loan to that person, what, first of all, you're going past the AML KYC issue very quickly. And then second of all, probably want to do some other kinds of verifications as well. Like, for example, what is this person's income uh, or what is this person's, uh, you know, available, you know, Group cash reserves? Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. solvency um, is one of the ways that, um, you know, you think about this in the context of uh, digital assets and in financial world. And that's also another interesting case where you could prove solvency to establish a certain level of creditworthiness to get a loan without revealing a ton of underlying data, right? And so today, proof of solvency uh, in a physical world, just think about going and getting a mortgage, is all kinds of paperwork, right? Or any kind of loan, right? It's all kinds of paperwork from different institutions, right? Um, In the context of something like proof of solvency, that's a proof using uh, technology like zero-knowledge proofs that can prove that it has all the backing documentation and that you have a certain level of solvency and that certificate or that proof proves that without having to actually go and look at all the source documentation again, right? Um, and without having to have that source documentation available at, you know, at the split second that the proof is being evaluated. So I, I know we've gone down a rabbit hole and I want to get back to how zero knowledge proof will help artificial intelligence progress But before we go there, it seems like what you're talking about as it relates to uh, verifiable personal identification as well as proof of solvency through zero-knowledge proof and blockchain technology can open up a new type of banking sector, could allow for people to have loans issued like on the spot for digital assets that you know, traditional retail banking might not have ever even thought about, you know, like I want to buy that digital sword for $10,000. And, you know, imagine if you and I walked into Bank of America and we asked for a $10,000 loan to purchase a sword for Fortnite, they would laugh us out of there. But these things could become actually reality. Do you you agree? I do. And I think, you know, like having, having lived through the the 90s era when stock options were a way that tech companies, you know, helped create a bigger compensation package for employees. Banks didn't know what stock options were worth, right? To right. like, they couldn't conceptualize that, right? And so I, I kind of think very similarly around like different forms of digital assets. Like this is just a new form of, of value that's not quite yet understood broadly. Uh, although I think if you look at most thoughtful financial institutions. They very much see the benefits of tokenizing all different types of assets, including real world assets, because it just speeds up your ability to transact on those assets. So yeah, if you go back to my point earlier in this conversation is we have this new tech stack, right? What will we build with it? What will be the new things that get built over the next five to 10 to 15 years uh, on top of this tech stack? So what about the issue of, um, I touched on it a little earlier, but just to expand on it, the issue of 
whether or not these machines are being trained properly, can can zero knowledge proof somehow be built into verifying whether or not the the model has been trained properly? It seems to me like some of these large language models are are like you know so massive. I don't know if zero knowledge proof is capable yet of verifying everything that's coming out of you know GPT four or, or or other types of large language models. But is there a value um, as it relates to to the machine learning piece of it? I think you have to be rather than trying to like bite off the whole whole cake, right? Look at a specific use case and think through the use case and how there might be value, um, you know, in a in a specific use case. You know, and a great example is in terms of how we show up in a digital context. Um, how do you know that Mark is talking to York, right? That's that's one problem, right? And with the with the, you know you can see this by the way every day if you're following anything that's going on with AI, the ability to replicate my voice with different words, and the ability to repli- uh, replicate my digital presence, my visual digital presence, is possible today. It's just a matter of uh, horsepower and you know the types of types of algorithms they're using. And there's very accessible consumer examples of this. Um, And so that now goes to this problem, which is, how do I know what I'm looking at is not synthetic? Um, And how do I know, how do we get to this representation of these words coming out of this synthetic version of, of, you know, someone, someone's presence, right? And obviously that's a very significant concern, right, from a, destabilization of, of um, democracies and, and other, you know, very bad uses of outcomes potentially. So then the question becomes, you know, how did you get here from the perspective of, of the inputs and the models and the presentation of those? And that's effectively provenance. We talked a little bit about provenance earlier as well. And what that means is you want to understand how this digital experience was created that I'm looking at. Um, What were the tools? What were the transformations? What were the inputs? Were those actually York's words from some valid source? Was the image that was created of York, uh, whether it's still or moving, what is the origin of that particular image um, that, that that gives it validity? Right, as, as an actual human image taken with film um, or with a camera um, and not a synthetic right, uh, outcome. So both of those things are, you know, you have to essentially go back to the, the source of the data, look at how the data is being transformed, have proofs associated with um, the source, have proofs associated with the transformation that shows that the transformation was valid and okay. And this involves, you know, zero knowledge proofs, um, signatures, you know, all along this chain of custody associated with how this digital experience of a, a person was created. So it, it seems to me that with the election cycle about to heat up again, this idea of deep fakes in politics is, you know, really important. I heard an anecdote, interestingly, um, it was a, a friend of mine in the tech space that was talking about um c2pa is that is yeah. that it york where C2PA. essentially a signet what it, it's c2pa 
T2P. So yeah. If I'm getting this right, it's essentially um, it allows for the um, creator technology, like a camera, to have a signature on the original content um, yep. to show that it's it's real, that it's it's authentic. That's right. Um, and that yep. politicians, because of deep fakes, may consider now literally going into the marketplace, having conversations and literally recording everything that they're saying to show the time and the date that they said it. And then using um, this type of signature to authenticate what they said so they could push back on deep fakes. Have you heard anything about this yet? Yeah. So C2PA is actually a... Uh, an organization that was um, co-founded by uh, some camera companies and some tech companies. And uh, so I think Adobe is part of it, Microsoft's part of it, uh, Sony, Nikon, uh, a couple other camera manufacturers. And the idea, exactly as you described it, is we want to ensure that we know the origin of content in a film, right, whether it's video or moving. Um, still or video context, right? And so the CTPA actually describes essentially a signing mechanism on that content, which packages the original content plus a bunch of metadata directly from the camera that's not manipulable with, with the caveat of what I said earlier, <laughs> which is, right, as soon as hardware is out in the wild, hardware is an attack surface, right? But inside the, the concept here is that hardware can hold a signature, can hold a secure enclave, can sign with, this, with the key that's in the secure enclave that allows you to create an envelope, a package, which says, this is the original photo, and this photo was taken with this other associated metadata, with things that you would typically see from a camera, plus things like GPS, right, time and location, which right. helps you establish the, you know, the, the origin provenance of, of that particular piece of film. Now, what happens to film, as you're probably aware, is if you take an original 12 megabyte um, photo, that's not what gets published on a website. It's not what, right? It, it gets transformed right. before it's published on a website. It's going to be so, edited for newspaper publication, digitally, et cetera, right? So, so does it lose that signature then once it's, once it's modified? It gets an additional signature. So um, that's why Adobe is involved, right? So Adobe has Photoshop and other tooling which does digital transformations of, of media content, right? And so in the context of something like Adobe, modifying, whether it's cropping or doing something else, maybe enhancing the colors, right, associated with a particular picture, that transformation, cropping or modifying the colors, is then a validated transformation. Uh, the software would actually sign it with the software's key and say, this is val a valid transformation here's the inputs before the transformation, here's the transformation algorithm uh, that we used, and here's the, the outputs after the transformation. So now it becomes a validated sign transformation by this piece of software. Um, so that becomes part of the provenance associated with this piece of digital media. And that gives you, if you, if you think about that, wind that all the way forward to the concept of, the, of a deep fake, if it's completely synthetic, you won't have that original signature on the content, right? You won't have the validated transformations of that content into, into the final product. And so provenance of things that are synthetic that are generated by AI is extremely important, right? Um, and that is you know, 
again, that going back to what's the value case of having a scaled up applied engineering substrate like Web3, those concepts are very well understood in the concept, context of Web3. How do we have validation of media by consumers without the necessity to have a federated authority that is you log into to go find it, right? Um, and you know, if you sort of wind that back to the early days of the web and e-commerce, these types of trust certificates, which in our scenario here would roll up essentially all of the various proofs associated with um, those transformations into the final product, that trust certificate would be something, say maybe you would see it on the screen here and be able to click on a little eye in the corner, which very much like a website or an e-commerce site would give you, here's the trail of trust associated with the provenance of this data, which shows you where it comes from. In the context of political campaigns, what you typically see on the bottom of a political ad is this ad is authorized by. Yep. Um, so that could be an additional signature on the content, which if you say click on you know, in a digital context, you click on this little eye and you get the trail, part of that signature would be that it's that it's a valid piece of content authorized by a, a political figure. So York, the, the, the concept of like one of the pillars of cryptography is the idea that we have a higher level of trust. Is that is that a fair assessment? A trust of the data that's passing between the two parties? Um, trust that the data is tamper evident. Um, yeah. Right. So uh, it doesn't necessarily change your trust in the data. It changes your trust in who created it, how it was handled, right? What was the custody of that? So it's got to be a really exciting time to be at Microsoft right now. In June of 2023, McKinsey issued a report estimating that artificial intelligence technology could add $2.6 trillion to $4.4 trillion in annual value to the global economy by making an array of processes more efficient and effective. So that's really interesting. Evercore predicted that AI could add 50 to $100 billion to Microsoft's annual revenue by 2027. And this past February, in February of 2023, your CEO, Satya Nadella, said, I've not seen something like this since I would say 2007, 2008, when the cloud was just first coming out. So my question to you, Jorg, is how, is, how do you expect Microsoft to capitalize on artificial intelligence first, and then to follow up really beyond the obvious uh, for the people that you know are into tech and following tech, like which new products can we expect and what utilitarian type of features will these products have? Great, great question. So I think first of all, um, you know, describing AI as a utility is complete, completely valid, right? It's uh, how, does, how do you leverage this new technology to make you more productive in the things that you're trying to do. This fundamentally changes like writing and blog writing and the productivity that you can actually achieve, whether you're a student or, or a writer um, or a researcher, you know, just having the facility of this assistant, which helps, you know, uh, do things that you would normally do yourself. Um, and then you become more of an editor versus uh, a writer. Um, that's quite useful. And I think we're going to see a lot of that. Um, there was a great lecture by um, Ethan Mollick. I don't know if you know that name. Uh, he's, a, he's a Wharton professor, um, and he teaches entrepreneurship and 
Um, he's obviously very down the AI AI rabbit hole. Um, yeah. And one of the questions he asked actually in a session that uh, I participated in as part of my NYU instruction uh, last week was how many people in the audience have spent more than 10 hours working just with things like ChatGPT and uh, OpenAI and you know, essentially the tooling, whether it's mid-journey or, or you know, writing tools and things like that. And it's a really interesting uh, data point, but that kind of pushes you to say, well, am I using this technology enough, right? It's available today. Why are not I not using this technology more, right? And so as I go into the teaching in the fall semester, I'm going to totally expect that my students are using AI to help them be much more efficient in writing blogs and things like that, right? And so what does that mean from a from an instructor perspective? I'm going to assume that the content is going to go up in terms of um, right output, right? The, the sophistication of the content um, should ideally be be higher, right? And the level of the level of uh, writing should be higher because it's now easier for you to get to the end product. That's just productivity, right? And so this type of utility will show up in every productivity tool that we use. You know, whether it's Word, PowerPoint, Excel, or you know, any kind of other modeling tools, we're going to see the add-on and the benefits of AI associated with that. And in a programming context, it's actually been happening for quite some time. If you look at the, the GitHub Copilot capability, it's been in the market for a while. It helps what I just described about blog writing. It does that for programmers. It helps programmers more quickly arrive at something that's a reasonable implementation of what they're trying to achieve. And then obviously you go through and modify things that you need to tweak. And additionally, um, uh, Ethan Malik actually used this example. He's not a programmer, but he's able to actually write Python code to right to show visualizations based on the, the data that he's working with because of AI. Right. And so there's there's this very transformative and um, sort of uh, productivity uh, transcendent capability that AI gives us, which is why I think the term utility is really important uh, utility, because it's not like you're going to create necessarily a new product, right? You're actually creating value through the technology in existing productivity applications. Now, so, so uh, what does that do for for like innovation as it relates to mankind? Um, like, are you saying that the new language for coding is English or will be English? Yeah, there's definitely people who are saying that, right? Like the the fact that you can construct a sentence um, that can be transformed into code and the language of choice of that code can be many, right? Um, Is quite powerful, right? It, It now, Obviously, when you have your tools on something, your your fingers on something powerful, you have to have some context of like what is that thing doing and, and what does it mean, at least in the early stages. So I think we will continue to see lots of examples of that. Um, I mean, there are examples of of uh, that on the internet. Like there's a uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a, the um, baby AGI application. I've heard of it, but I've never used it. Okay, so there's a what baby AGI and terminology, you know, put terminology aside, but um, AGI stands for artificial general intelligence. Uh, the concept of baby AGI was how do I use AGI, AI as it exists today to try to get, you know, sort of closer 
uh, to that. And what Baby AGI is, it's basically taking multiple steps, feeding that into AI, AI creating some output, taking that output, feeding it into the next step of things that I need to do to you know, get to an end in state I'm trying to get to. Um, and this interesting and also quite viral uh, thing that happened on the internet in the last month or two, guess who wrote it? It was written by a VC, <laughs> like Amazing. not by a programmer. Right? Right. Like, this is my point. So how will that impact? Like, so, so if, if the argument is that now English will be the programmer's common language, that means that it opens up to people with no, no computer science background, right? If a VC wrote, yeah. right? If a VC wrote that, how is that going to advance science, medicine, it's, it could fuel job creation. It could have impacts on, you know, the film industry and, and you know, and, and beyond. Yeah, I mean, if, if so, a couple of things. One, um, we're having a conversation in English, right? An example of where a large language model in real time would be quite useful is if you don't speak English, right? We could be having a conversation that's translated on the fly. That capability has been around for a while. It just hasn't been fast enough, right? Um, right. And so... It's a great example for things like Zoom and Teams and, you know, discussions like this where you could have language models translating from English into other languages on the fly. And, you know, you can imagine this would be this type of thing that happens in the UN, right? In the UN, when someone speaks in a particular language, there's all these translators, right, that are human beings translating, um, you know, the, the answer. So you could do that more quickly and you could still have human co-pilot right? Intervention, um, which says, okay, I agree with that translation, right? Um, or I would tweak that translation, right? Use this word instead of that word. To, because the, the people who are doing those translations are highly trained, right? Uh, around the nuances of, of the subject matter uh, areas. And so having that co-pilot, you know, scenario would be useful there. So that's, I mean, that's, you know, I think we're going to see just these massive changes in the assumptions that we make about communication. In addition, you know, to your point about the film industry, there are so many examples on the internet of like short films and feature-length films that are completely created through someone using AI prompts, right, to generate outputs. And a lot of techniques actually that have been performed uh, for years just can be enhanced with, with AI to, to more quickly get to the outcome. So I think we'll see in almost any kind of digital media a, a speed up in the ability to arrive at the outcome. You know, and film and video and feature length films uh, and film production and games um, and metaverse experiences, those are all 3D context digital media experiences. So, so will Microsoft, is this part of the evolution of Microsoft? Will Microsoft take on this new type of um, uh, almost like a, a new form of Microsoft, a new entity of sorts with open, uh, open AI really, you know, arguably leading the path of, of, you know, AI, artificial intelligence and Microsoft having such a significant ownership stake in open AI is the, is the Microsoft company evolving again? Are we seeing this new type of entity unfolding before our eyes? So, not speaking as a Microsoft spokesperson, but like speaking as somebody who's observing, um, I think there's there's two lenses to that. 
One, um, you know, Microsoft's already spoken about having this capability in all of its productivity applications. Um, yeah. That's that's one. Um, uh, and, and as an example, there's a Microsoft, I think it's called Microsoft Create, that's now part of the browser um, that actually uses Dolly right, to yeah. to create imagery and to help with like you know things you might want to do that type of imagery for. You know, to your point about advertising that speeds or production of advertising content speeds that up. So Microsoft will evolve its technology landscape, right? From every application, right? Will will want to take advantage of this utility and this capability. So fully, I would fully expect to see across uh, across the board at Microsoft, uh, you know, just working on where does it make sense to infuse AI into particular products. And that could be the things that we think about that are Microsoft products like Office, could be in Teams, it can be in LinkedIn, it can be in Dynamics, it can be in core Azure functions, yeah. um, right? Uh, it's an exciting time. Yeah, there's there's a lot of landscape. I mean, you, I, I heard Elon comment that um, uh, although he was an obviously an early investor in OpenAI, I heard him comment that Microsoft controls OpenAI. Did you hear that? I think Elon likes, first of all, likes to hear himself talk, and second of all, loves to be provocative. Um, so um, I, I had not heard that, but uh, it's not a comment I wouldn't have yeah. passed him, right? Uh, so. but, but another um, transformation. By the way, one other data point. So um, Microsoft has a lot of its own products, but the products that are built on Microsoft technologies is actually vastly bigger, right? And so those are all of our partner partners, right? People who we help build, help understand, you know, the Microsoft landscape of tooling, um, where they can build applications on top of that, whether that's a cloud native startup or whether it's, you know, other types of companies, uh, like SAP obviously is a big partnership with Microsoft, even though Microsoft has Dynamics, which is a somewhat competing product in a slightly different market segment. The partnership and the ecosystem is extremely important to Microsoft. And if you look at some of the most recent partnerships that we're doing, forget OpenAI, which is just a huge unicorn type of you know, multi-billion dollar partnership. But look at down from there, right? The smaller partnerships, they all in some way actually include uh, the value case of AI and those technologies, whether they're a startup or, or in any particular sector, right? And so we're gonna see that, uh, again, this is an enabling technology. AI is now a part of the toolkit Right. The next thing you do for the next five to 10 years is going to have AI as part of that toolkit. And then, you know, as I said earlier, this, the tech stack of the Internet has evolved to include essentially AI. We, you know, we spoke about the value of Web3 in you know, the gaming metaverse earlier as it relates to Fortnite proof of solvency, proof of, of you know, being an actual living human, um, et cetera. But part of the transformation that Microsoft seems to be taking on also is the community that it's buying into or bringing along with regards to the $70 billion Activision Blizzard acquisition. And all of a sudden, um, unlocking these massive communities that are very loyal in Call of Duty and World of Warcraft and beyond. So what's the impact 
uh, to the Microsoft ecosystem when you bring these huge communities, very loyal fans, great intellectual property assets too. What's the impact on, on Microsoft from that perspective? You know, it's interesting. Uh, like obviously Activision is a very large acquisition assuming it's approved and goes through everywhere. And again, speaking as an outsider, it is um, part of Xbox. Right? And so that's a very big division at Microsoft that's specifically focused on gaming. And, um, you know, it's it's a very sizable acquisition in, in the gaming space. So it will have a transformative impact, you know, on what we imagine is Microsoft gaming, right, in, in terms of um, the different studios that, that build product in that space. I think, um, you know, we, we briefly spoke about this as well, is like both digital ownership and AI have a uh, massive future in uh, the context of gaming. Um, related to asset ownership and things that, that gamers collect that, you know, today they don't really own, they're really renting them, is one. And then secondly, um, as you look at the utility of, of AI, even in its most nascent form around creating digital media, that has got to transform the work associated with um, bringing games to production, right? And so I think that's going to have a uh, a big impact as well. I mean, like typical AAA game production cycle is four years, um, and it's just a ton of digital content. Uh, it's very, it's very similar to, and more complicated in some ways than creating a feature film. Right? Because now you have it's a multiplayer game, right? So how do you, how do you think about that? So, so you mentioned like if the transaction is ultimately approved, I think it's making some progress in certain regions, but you know. Your comment um, obviously puts my mind into where we are in, here in the United States. It seems like the United States government, to a certain extent right now, is like anti-big tech. I'm not even talking about on the regulation side. We could get into that conversation in a second as it relates to the SEC and the confusion to cryptocurrency and all. But do you feel like there's a general United States government sentiment surrounding big tech right now where they're just kind of against it? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think the United States government's a, uh, a complicated uh, set of bodies uh, with individuals, right, which um, in an ideal world are responding to their constituents, um, you know, places like Congress and, and the Senate. And I think you hear probably a lot more noise um, generally than you know what may be actually reality. Um, and I think as as outsiders, you know, to uh, to that, I think a lot of people probably ascribe different motivations. Um, and so I, you know, I, I just I think you know, frankly, politics is very complicated, right? In that way, and ultimately, it boils down to people and what people believe and what their constituents want. So I don't know. I don't. I don't have a definitive answer there. I do think that if you compare the United States to other geographies that have embraced uh, different types of technologies, you can see a concern about like um, slowing down innovation um, and slowing down uh, progress, right? Which is what innovation drives. Where if you if you think about it from a competitive landscape perspective, other geographies seem to be farther ahead in certain categories. You know, that being said, like there are definitely like consumer protection issues across all these technologies we've been talking about that, you know, 
someone's got to look after, right? Um, and typically that's been you know, various parts of, of governments um, you know, in the EU or the US or other geographies in the world. So yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really have a, a strong view on that. Um, sure. So, but trust is such a big issue. Like as we were, you know, we're evaluating the Microsoft ecosystem today and we've touched on so many different issues as it relates to the centralized force of Microsoft touching people's lives at home while they're gaming in the office. Um, now through the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence decentralized as it relates to blockchain technology, how will Microsoft be able to provide a certain level of confidence as it expands its ecosystem and its reach that the customer's privacy will be protected? It's a, it's a great question. Um, Microsoft, one of the, I think you can find this on the Microsoft website, it says something like Microsoft runs on trust, right? And so how do you establish trust uh, from a technical foundation perspective? That's where you, know, you have to think, you have to be very thoughtful about how vulnerabilities are introduced into both hardware and software uh, and you have to put in place controls that um, prevent those from happening. You have to think about when a customer runs a workload, what, how do you help that customer understand how to create a workload that's safe and secure and doesn't reveal secrets, as an example? How do you ensure that that customer is, uh, who's running that workload is thinking about GDPR and you know, consumer privacy and consumer data. Those are all one sort of practices and, and guidance that we provide to customers. But as a technical substrate, we think very deliberately about what does the software supply chain look like? What does the software stack look like? How do you make sure that a software stack is, has um, uh, efficacy of provenance. Um, that's actually a big area that in the U.S. there's an executive order specifically focused on on, on that um, technical area. And that's really important, right? Because if you inject malware or some kind of backdoor into a software stack without knowing, without people knowing it, right, it basically becomes a dormant attack vector, right, that can be awoken at any point in time. So Hence why the U.S. government has you know, created an executive order around that topic. Whether it is, um, how do the workloads run in a trustful context, right? How do you ensure that when keys are generated to create encryption around uh, data at rest, data in transit, and data in essentially in, in memory or being computed on, what are the tools that you put in place to ensure that that encryption key right, is not vulnerable, right? And how was that encryption key generated? Um, who holds that encryption key? Who has access to that encryption key? And, you know, enforcing things like rotation of keys and things like that. So there's a lot of policy and control around systems that really create a bar an environment that is a trustful environment to operate code in, right? Which and underlying every application, right, that, that we talked about earlier, whether it's Office, or Activision, or LinkedIn, or Dynamics, or third-party workloads like SAP, it's all code, right? And so that is a technology foundation that you have to ensure from uh, the physical plant, meaning the physical you know, guardrails around a cloud data center, 
to the physical devices inside the center, to their firmware, to the software that runs on them, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up the stack, right? Um, all of those things have to be part of that trust. And yet it seems like Microsoft is even going deeper into um, capturing different types of data from individuals. Um, your CEO, Satya Nadella, referred to this time period as the co-pilot era, which is really interesting, particularly as it relates to product now perhaps beyond um, programming. So, for example, I noticed with the United States Patent and Trademark Office that Microsoft just filed for a patent surrounding an artificial intelligence-powered backpack. Have you heard of this? I saw that over the weekend also. Yeah, uh, so it's incredible. It's filled with sensors. Yeah. Um, they provided a few illustrations, one with an individual who's skiing. I think another was in yeah. front of a Beatles poster. Um but again, capturing tons of data so that this backpack is no longer just an object holding, you know, a, a, a child's school books and pens, but rather really serving as a co-pilot of sorts. The terminology co-pilot is actually a really good framing for for AI, and I think I used use it earlier in discussion. But basically, yeah. it's like you have all this power, right? That that power is really a co-pilot to the pilot, and you as the consumer are the pilot, right? And so. The example I used with um, translators, right? The translator actually is the pilot. The AI that does the, you know, the quick translations and first iteration or first draft is is a copilot, right? And so that's a really important um, contextualization of how we think about the power of all of this AI utility. That ultimately the consumer's in control, right? Of what gets, for, you know, into the final product. Um, Second point, going back to the patent. So I don't know, I haven't seen anything internally. I don't know anything about um, the internal filings. As you mentioned, there was a public filing that was um, recently revealed through the patent office. Um, what's interesting though, and my first impression was, well, what's in that thing, right? Um, and so my first reaction is literally everything is in that thing is also in your phone, right? Every sensor that's in the backpack is in the phone already, right? So we already have walk around with a something that it you know has all those same sensors and i think the the utility of the backpack as you combine it with other technologies is that a backpack gives you a better way to carry heavy duty computing equipment including batteries and things like that that frees up your hands right because a phone obviously you're manipulating with your hands and so that I think is a useful context in a, in a lot of different uh, ways. There was also, I think some recent filings as well around like um, different types of uh, headsets, right? Um, you know, and the range of headsets, by the way, is, is vast, right? From things that look like glasses, you know, to full VR headsets with, you know, in an inability to see through the front of the headset like an Oculus, right? And I think the the filing related to the headset was, and it might have been referenced in the same article that I read, was basically that um, these um, cameras would allow you to um, ingest the external environment into this new headset um, and then manipulate imagery like you do with AR, VR, um, but not have the the... AR experience being provided through your eyes, have it actually being provided by a camera, which then gets fed into a screen, which 
could be opaque, right? Just like an Oculus. Now, whether that's good or not, I don't know. But the way it was described in uh, in this presentation was that it gives you uh, a more powerful and seamless way to integrate the parts of the experience together that you would typically see through AR um, because you're pulling in the external environment, but the way you're doing it, it's already digitized, right? And so it gives you a more powerful way to, to manipulate that. Um, so just tying that to the backpack is you can imagine that now you've got a backpack, which is very powerful, and you've got a headset, which is very powerful, and those could collaborate together to give you basically a experience that's a completely hands-free experience that completely understands your surrounding. Um, kind of feels a little bit like an autonomous vehicle, right? Or yeah. an autonomous capability that, you know, does things that we've always imagined things like glasses would do with an AR overlay, right? Um, so, you know, I, I don't know, I, you know, whether, whether that's real or not, um, you know, we obviously today you can buy laptops that have some of that capability. I'm sorry, today you can buy backpacks that have some of that capability. There's a lot of backpacks that, for example, that have battery, battery chargers, um, there's backpack backpacks, which have sensors in the market. Um, so is that an evolution of the backpack in a, you know, in a, like, as we think about, um, in the fashion world, IOT enabled clothing, right? This is now an, essentially an IOT enabled backpack, right? Um, seems like a natural evolution of possible use cases, uh, in the world. York, I've had you for the entire morning. Um, just one thing that I do with every guest is we kind of do this like predicting type of thing where, um, I give you like, you essentially say like in some future day, and then I like give you like a prompt, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So, um, do you mind doing like one or two of those with us? Yeah, real absolutely. quick. Yeah. So it's just like a sentence, right? So like, for example, in some future day, my co-pilot will be. Essentially a digital twin of myself, right? With a full, um, uh, identity as an agent that I authorize, um, which has a combination of, um, you know, this tech stack, which I talked about, which is the, uh, the full web three tech stack, which respects my self-sovereign identity, my digital ownership of things, um, and the utility of, um, AI, right. Which can actually speak in a digital context on my behalf. And then finally in some future day, Microsoft, the company will be. The company will have products that evolved to to include the utility of AI um, across across the product suites to the point uh, where it is just infused in their product and consumers don't actually have to invoke it um, in the same way. Awesome. I know your time is very important, so thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insights surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. 
Have a great day.